Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is myself, Tavis Killian, along with the new intern, Neil Snow. Welcome to the show, Niels. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And if it does sound a little bit different, the articles for Base and Breakdown this month, that's because Niels did all the heavy lifting. He's the man with the plan. He's writing out the articles. I'm kind of hands off. So this is his brainchild now. It's still going to be great. We're going to give you great information, talk about mergers, new technology, the best news for each basin across the country. Well, the major basins, that is. So, Niels, take it away. Sweet. Yeah, let's jump right in. We're going to start with the DJ Naribrera. Kind of the big first headline is that the Colorado Senate confirmed some appoints to the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Uh, there's kind of been a large dispute amongst Republicans and Democrats about whether these appointments uh, represent Colorado and the state of the oil and gas industry. Uh, the Kind of some of the Republicans are arguing that these appointments do not fit the statute of the institution which states that two members should be west of the Continental Divide and the others from areas with high oil and gas activity or employment. Currently, two representatives are from Lakewood and the three others are from Denver, Gunnarsson, and Durango. Yeah, so this one has been going on for almost a year now because, you know, the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission was originally created to support the oil and gas industry, but as of last year, Polis kind of transformed it and he picked these appointees. Finally, they're through, but I kind of agree with some people's concerns. It should be representative of especially counties producing oil and gas. And if Weld County isn't represented, but two citizens from Lakewood are here, I mean, sure, there's some businesses in the area, but it does seem a little backwards. Yeah, and they play such a fundamental role in kind of the future development of the industry that, you know, that representation, that mutual understanding between the two parties is really essential, I think. Next little bit of a merger, strange one at that, High Point Resources files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, which makes sense. I mean, sometimes you just have to do that, but it is part of their reorganization ahead of their merger with Bonanza Creek Energy. Under this transaction, Bonanza Creek will issue 9.8 million shares of common stock and up to 100 million in senior unsecured notes to High Point debt holders in an exchange offer, and the remaining debt will be assumed for transactions valued at at around $376 million. So I don't have my MBA. I'm not a man of business negotiations, but this seems like a good way for those involved with High Point Resources to get out with their hands clean. Yeah, well, it's a little, a little troubling because it seems like they're about to get um, acquired. So it seems like a lot of that debt that they have would be kind of under Bonanza Creek uh, jurisdiction. But um, yeah, there must be something under the table that we don't understand that's going on between these two companies. Kind of our last part of the DJ that we want to cover is that the Colorado Senate proposed Bill 72, which uh, kind of has been proposed two months after what happened in Texas with the uh, trouble with the electricity and their grids. And so Senate Bill 72 is kind of is targeting preventing a disaster like the one in Texas that happened so recently. It's going to allow for Colorado's grid to be more connected with other neighboring grids uh, for other states and for of Colorado to be able to purchase uh, the lowest cost power uh, wherever and however it may come. This bill confuses me a little bit because, of course, we're already connected to the Western grid. You know, you've got the Western, the Eastern, which even extends into Canada, and that was Texas's thing. ERCOT is its own, but I wonder with this, if we're just going to find the cheapest energy even outside of state borders and import it, much like states like California do when they don't have it. So I'm excited to see how this one plays out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it affects kind of, I don't know, maybe electricity consumption and generation in Colorado itself. Oh, even prices for consumers, I bet, are going to be affected. Hopefully for the better. But that's about all we're rocking for the DJ Basin this month, so we'll move it right on over to our nearby neighbors in Wyoming and talk about the Powder River Basin. And 
probably about a year ago, I mentioned companies who are using uh, cryptocurrency to try and generate profits, and hey, it's back again. It's generating a lot of interest. I mean, each year, gas flaring permits become harder and harder to get, so Wesco Operating Incorporated is exploring new solutions revolving around cryptocurrency mining. Commercially observed in 2020, cryptocurrency mining converts gas that would otherwise go wasted to electricity. Wesco is making use of Easy Blockchain's smart box technology that does just this. Monetizing gas that would have otherwise been wasted is a step forward in energy use as it continues to identify byproducts as feedstocks. In February of 2021, Wesco was flaring zero gas per day and has the capacity to generate one megawatt of electricity from gas that would have been considered useless not more than two years ago. Now, again, I love this. This is really cool. We're identifying things that were wasted. I mean, we've burned so much gas just willy-nilly flaring it off in the past, but now we're finding ways to feed it back into systems that can generate even more profits. We're monetizing what was a waste before. I love it. Yeah, and our next story, um, kind of from the Powder River Basin, comes from a well that Navigation Powder River uh, kind of discovered this last month in a new formation called the Parkman Formation. Uh, they, the well had a lateral length of no, 4.5K. The well had an initial BOE per day of 1,487 and solid oil within the first five hours of initial flowback. And I think this is pretty, just pretty significant because it kind of shows the future potential and undiscovered potential of the Powder River Basin moving forward, I think. Definitely new formations. And like you said, that IP30 is pretty good, but I would be interested to see IP90 and even further out to see where that fall off is. But this is promising, great new development. And that's about all we have for Wyoming. Not a slow month, but again, we're just trying to bring you what we feel are the most impactful things. So next up, we're going to move it down to Texas. Love to talk about Texas, especially the Permian Basin. Pilot Water Solutions has expanded its position as a major disposal player in the Delaware Basin of West Texas with its acquisition of Felix Water. The addition of Felix assets will bring Pilot Water's disposal well in the Delaware to 23. The combined company will also boast 210 miles of produced water pipeline and over 500,000 barrels of water per day of disposal capacity in the region. And this might seem small now, but it's only going to become a bigger and bigger issue, especially with fresh water use for drilling or water use in the region. So this is probably a hot spot to be if you're trying to get into, I don't know, any oil field business. I definitely think water disposal, I'm sure it's already pretty well fleshed out, but there are huge opportunities here. Definitely. And I think a lot of people see the Permian as the future of U.S. production. So as production kind of ramps up there, especially after post-COVID, this could be fundamental. Moving right along to two of the biggest players in the Permian, ExxonMobil and Chevron have reduced their drilling activity in the Permian Basin oil field after dominating this area just about a year ago. These two are taking a very cautious approach to kind of developing this region post-COVID and is a major reason uh, behind why oil production still hasn't uh, rebounded since kind of before the lockdowns in 2020. The production is now around 11 million barrels per day, down from the record nearly 13 that it hit in late 2019. So this is kind of strange because, like you mentioned, we've seen those prices rise. A lot of other people are kickstarting off a bunch of activity. But you also mentioned something important, data, and the fact that it may not be updated. Yeah, I mean, right now we're looking at data that's still around uh, two months delayed. So um, it'll be interesting just to see as the data kind of updates if these uh, two companies kind of up their activity. And then our last story from the basin, pollution from the Permian Basin dropped 60% from March to April last year, which, you know, makes sense. A whole lot of coronavirus going around. But 
methane emissions are now back to pre-pandemic levels as drilling ramps back up. Maybe not for Exxon and Chevron, but plenty of other people. In order to combat these emissions, New Mexico has introduced legislation that will require at least 98% natural gas capture by the end of 2026. The new rules go into effect April 1st and will also require quarterly reporting, but don't worry, this isn't 98% by April 1st. These will be incremental adjustments all the way to 2026 to hit that final goal. The state is hopeful that these new rules will provide jobs and revenue associated with gas capture, and they were also drafted as a response to Governor Grissom's request for nation-leading methane reduction rules, and I gotta say, I like it. Decent time frame, they're making efforts, and we'll see what happens. I, I don't think everyone's gonna hit the production goal every month, but it's a good step in the right direction for gas capture. Sounds like they need to mine some more cryptocurrency, in my <laughs> exactly. opinion. Moving east to the Eagleford, Oventive had an interesting uh, kind of occurrence this past month where they sold all of their assets in Eagleford to Validus Energy for $880 million. This is really significant because they actually bought these assets for around $3.1 billion, which shows that they sold these assets for about a third of what they acquired them for. They've really done this to eliminate their $4.5 billion in debt that they uh, have acquired over the last little bit. And this really shows that the uh, challenges that are faced in this part of the shale industry in this location. Exactly. I mean, this is something we've looked at for almost a whole year now. When things went bad, they went bad. People trying to divest, people trying to pay down their debts, and things that they acquired for several billions of dollars aren't worth that much in the eyes of the buyers right now. I mean, look at that, what was it? Occidental acquired Anadarko for $54 billion? Ooh, that has not aged well, but fortunately they're managing it. But again, this is just one of the struggles of being in the industry. When things are hot, they are hot, and when they're not, they are not. But next up... I mean, like I said, Niels was writing this. He goes, I just can't find interesting articles. Well, that's because it's the Eagleford. We're struggling. With the Permian so nearby, everything goes there. But when the recent winter storm caused a record-breaking streak of freezing weather in Texas, natural gas production in the Eagleford shale decreased to its lowest monthly level since April of 2013, resulting in 343 million fewer cubic feet per day of natural gas production. And I got to say, it sucks, but the Eagleford, we're rooting for you. We want you to win. Moving right along to Scoopstack in Oklahoma, the big point right now has been Biden's pause on oil and gas leases in the United States. Uh, and just this past month, the attorney general in Oklahoma sued the Biden administration to end suspension of new oil and gas leases on federal land. This suit specifically seeks an order that the government go ahead with the sale of oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico that had been scheduled for March 17th until it was canceled. And again, a great way to learn more about this is to look at Kevin's periodical series that actually looked at how states are responding to this. Because, I mean, there's a lack of drilling, there's lease sales being canceled, the BLM even doesn't have a lot to say. So if you're looking to learn more about that, go to rarepetro.com, look at the periodical podcast, and find a state you're interested in, because we've talked about a few of them. Our next article, though, Chesapeake. I know they've had a rough year, but it looks like it's only going to get rougher for them. A subsidiary of Chesapeake Energy Corporation was found guilty of failing to protect wetlands at 76 sites across Pennsylvania. As the state's Department of Environmental Justice notes, the Chesapeake disclosure noted that an internal environmental audit process revealed the company's systematic failure to identify wetland resources and applications to the DEP to construct oil and gas facilities in Pennsylvania between 2005 and 2014. While it certainly is not ideal to pay such a large fine just after emerging from bankruptcy, it certainly looks good that they reported it themselves because, hey, it could have been 
the Department Environmental Agency pointing it out, but it looks like this has been ongoing for a while. So shout out to Chesapeake for actually conducting internal auditing, but man, I hurt for them. This has been a tough, tough yeah. year. Yeah, it's been a rough road behind them. It's going to be a rough road ahead. But that is about all we've got for Oklahoma. Niels, what can you tell me about the madness going on in California? Awesome. Well, they're uh, actually implementing a new fast track permit in California, hoping to approve quite a few new wells. The board of supervisors is poised to vote on a revised ordinance supported by the influential petroleum industry that creates a blanket environment impact report to improve as many as 2,700 new wells a year. And of course, this makes the oil industry very happy but environmental groups <laughs> rather skeptical. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest issues in California. So many things get shut down because somebody will say they failed to review the environmental impacts, but something like this, I think it's great, especially if it's a blanket report. I mean, do we have to do it for every well if they're located so close? I don't think so. And there's such a backlog of permits that even Newsom hasn't been able to get through that well. So hopefully this is something good for the industry coming off of all of the bad news. And... Bad news mentioned, we had to talk about it. The Kern County Board of Supervisors approved a revised ordinance that would approve a little more than 40,000 new wells over the next 15 years. That's not the bad news. The bad news is the part where there was immediate pushback from many environmental groups, unsurprisingly, the Sierra Club, and they asked the court to bar them from drilling any wells. This comes hot off the heels of last year's ruling claiming that Kern County failed to adequately identify environmental damage that could occur from new drilling, just like we mentioned with that fast track permit. Kern County maintains that this will provide more jobs for people who need them and is still environmentally more friendly than importing oil from elsewhere, which makes sense. Even if we're importing from Canada, it's still going to be not as clean as some of the fields we have in the United States, but hey, it sure beats the hell out of China or Indian oil, I'll tell you that. Their opposition still feels that their drilling activities are an environmental disaster, so again, we'll just see how this tug of war plays out, but I doubt it will resolve itself. Moving right over to the Marcellus, we have some interesting kind of developments. Um, the government has vowed to actually use 50% solar energy uh, for energy consumption by 2023. So they're actually installing seven solar farms to generate around 191 megawatts of energy over the next two years to provide roughly around half of that consumption. And heading this effort, interestingly enough, is a kind of partner company of BP called Lighthouse BP. Um, that will be installing these solar panels. It's very interesting, even the research further, and see that a lot of farmers actually are now leasing their lands for operations like this to kind of install solar panels and things like that. That makes me wonder if farming is uh, not necessarily doing so well in the state, but hey, at least they're finding a way to win. And I like that you mentioned a subsidiary of BP is actually the one heading up this project. So pretty cool that they're trying to diversify themselves. But next, I'd like to talk a little bit about Occidental and how they received a favorable ruling in an antitrust case. So the Attorney General's office sued in 2015, accusing Anadarko at the time, and Chesapeake of eliminating competition and shortchanging landowners of signing bonuses and royalties by dividing counties in northern Pennsylvania where they plan to lease mineral rights. The lawsuit also accused Anadarko of obscuring how their royalties would be calculated. Anadarko's defense was simple. They were not selling services and not subject to action under consumer protection laws. They were simply buying mineral rights from those who wished to sell them. Chesapeake was eventually dropped from the case when they entered bankruptcy. In late March, courts sided with Anadarko, who is now owned by Occidental. Still, there are new efforts centered around defining what practices amount to unfair competition, and to break this, to oversimplify this really, 
let's say, Niels, you got a nice guitar, right? You don't know it's a nice guitar. I buy it off of you through Craigslist for 500 bucks, and then someone tells you, oh, hey, that thing was worth $5,000. Now, of course, you can't go to anyone and say, hey, he, he knew it was worth something and bought it off of me. But it's a little bit different with land. Well, you can Google the model of a guitar, but you can't Google what exactly your land's worth. You kind of trust the people buying it. So a little shady, maybe, but again, they were the buyer of the land. So it's kind of up in the air. I don't really know how I feel about this one. Yeah. I mean, largely many of the profits that oil and gas companies get from their leases comes from what their acquisition cost is. And if they're able to acquire lands at a cheaper price, they'll get larger returns on their investments. So it is in their best interest to find out the lowest <laughs> price, whether it's <laughs> a dark business or not. But that is only the news from the first gas basin, so let's take it to the second. Niels, what do we got going on in the Bakken? Yeah, interestingly enough, the North Dakota kind of government has issued a couple of grants to various different organizations to help kind of with the oil production process and the kind of the support the industry out there. Uh, one of the big developments that has been announced in this last month has been about this syrupy biodegradable substance that's going to be used in the fracking process. It's expected to reduce the attraction between rock and oil, freeing up crude so it can be extracted. If successful, the biosurfactant could eventually be produced in North Dakota using locally sourced materials such as canola oil and sugar beets to facilitate the fermentation process necessary to create the substance. The pilot project is being funded in part by, like I said, a grant of $206,000, uh, which was provided by the North Dakota Industrial Commission earlier this year. I love this. I mean, from an ESG perspective, can you imagine if this becomes successful and you can tell people, oh, uh, instead of using chemical surfactant, we put canola oil in fermented beet sugar in the ground. That's going to drive people nuts. They're going to love that. I mean, even better, it's locally sourced as well. So providing providing some assistance to the local Cage-free, economy. Cage-free, locally sourced, organic, <laughs> there you go. no hormone-added biosurfactant. Yeah, and again, that's great. I love to see it. And like you said, lots of money going out for studies. Triple A LLC, doing business as Wellspring Hydro, is a Williams County business that has been working to develop an opportunity out of the Bakken's brine problem since 2016. It just received a $750,000 loan from the North Dakota Developmental Fund to pay engineering costs on a process that recycles Bakken salt water and turns it into several different products, among them hydrochloric acid, sodium hydroxide, and table salt. The grant was one of 22, totaling $3.16 million to help new or expanding businesses develop. And like you mentioned, lots of money going out. We've got the North Dakota Industrial Commission giving out money, the North Dakota Developmental Fund, and both the oil and gas projects. It's really cool to see the state fostering a positive attitude towards the industry and giving out money to people who might be identifying waste as feedstock or changing the way biosurfactants work. I love it. Yeah, and I think these are both two very influential projects. I'd be interested to hear if they kind of I don't know if these kind of ripple throughout the industry and start being applied in different areas. It could flop, but hey, if you hear about it elsewhere, you heard it from Niels first. <laughs> but that is the end of this episode. That was the Basin Breakdown for the month of March. Sure, things are a little bit slow in places like the Eagleford, but there's still things being developed. I mean, look at the Bakken. North Dakota, clearly very excited for the industry, and there's people finding solutions. And even if oil sits at about $60 per barrel, the world's going to need it. Things are going to get better. And if you need more news and we didn't satisfy you, go to rarepetro.com. We've got a news segment every Monday we release. We've got other basic breakdowns. And hey, if you listen to a few of these in a row, you're going to have a finger on the pulse of the industry and be able to talk about it with just about anybody. But again, more resources at rarepetro.com. If you want to contact either Niels or I, you can email us at podcast at rarepetro.com. But 
hey, that's all we had. Congratulations to Niels for his first podcast episode. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Until we see you next time, take care, everybody.